Well, last week uh, in chapter 12, we saw that after a, uh, a failed attempt, we had two sermons in chapter 12, and we saw that after a failed attempt to destroy uh, Jesus, to destroy the Messiah, Satan takes his anger out on the church, and now his goal is the church. He's raging, he's mad, he is furious, and he is attempting to destroy the church. And so Satan has a twofold approach for accomplishing that goal. One way is through persecution, which he hopes uh, will frighten believers into abandoning the faith. And the other is deception, which might trick believers also into abandoning their faith. So Satan has a twofold approach when he's attacking the church. One is persecution, and the other is deception. And these are just the two things that we see him attempting to do in chapter 13 through these two beasts. One beast, uh, one being the beast of what I would call uh, state persecution. And I'll explain that hopefully a little more clearly here. And the other is the beast of false religion, which is what we'll look at next week in verses 11 through 18. So chapter 13 gives us a better understanding of what we saw in chapter 12 by showing how it is that Satan tries to bring spiritual destruction upon the people of God. That's what chapter 12 said Satan's doing. That's his goal. That's that's what he's coming after the church in chapter 13. says here's the two ways he's going to do that. It's through evil kingdoms and evil deceptive teaching. That's the two ways that Satan's going to do this. So if you're looking at your handout, you see there at the handout gives us the main idea the deception of Satan, and his response to those who do not follow. We're going to see the deception of Satan one way in this beast that comes out of the sea, and we're going to see how he responds to those who don't follow that. So, verses 1 through 4, the first thing we see here, the way we've outlined this, is called Satan's fake Messiah. Satan's fake Messiah. John's vision now brings us to a beast that's rising up out of the sea, and most likely... This beast was called upon by the dragon as he stood on the sand of the sea, if you'll remember in chapter 12, verse 17. So he calls upon this beast. He says in verse 1, I saw a beast rising out of the sea, and this beast was with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems or crowns on on its horns and blasphemous, blasphemous names on its heads. So we see this beast rising out of the sea here. And again, uh, just in case we have forgotten, uh, there's a lot of symbolism, right, in the book of Revelation. There's a lot of figurative language, a lot of symbolic language here. So we see this beast rising out of the sea. And that word sea there was um, in ancient biblical times, especially for the Hebrew people, was a dark, unknown place. And it was often associated with evil. That's what C is figurative for here, which seems to be the reason, if you look at uh, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, it tells us there that there is no more sea. We see heaven coming down, coming down to be upon earth, new heavens and new earth, and it says there, there's no longer any more sea, it's gone. So this beast is being uh, called from a dark, unknown place that's associated with evil, And the beast that John sees there has ten horns, seven heads, with ten diadems on those horns, and blasphemous names 
on their heads. The dragon in chapter 12, if you remember, we talked about him there in verse 3. If you'll notice, if you just kind of glance back there, he also has what? Seven heads and ten horns. And on his heads are seven diadems. And in chapter 12, verse 17, the dragon was standing on the sand of the sea. The dragon seems to be calling forth from the evil sea this beast in his own image. That's, that's the understanding where to get here. He's calling forth this beast. And this beast is him. It's, it's, it's like him. It's in his image. And notice there the ten horns. It has ten diadems. And he has seven heads. And we talked about that in chapter 12. These are symbolic for ruling authority and power. We need to understand that. That's what these are symbolic. These, these horns and these heads are symbolic for ruling authority and power. And those ten diadems there express the idea of great authority with political influence. In ancient times, if you were the first one to read this and you read of something that had a crown on its head, what did you automatically think? King, in charge, ruling, political influence. So that's our understanding here. And again, the dragon in chapter 12 has seven heads and ten horns, which also symbolize authority and power. So the dragon has clearly given his authority and power to who? This beast. We're going to talk about who this beast is. Notice that John also says that on this beast's heads were these blasphemous names. You'll have to forgive me. I have a hard time pronouncing blasphemous. Like many Roman emperors and others before them, these rulers would take on names and titles which was intended to claim deity for themselves. They took on these names. They give themselves these names which were intended to claim deity, that they were gods. And they took on those names and those titles, names that dishonor the true and the living God. In other words, the names are a way of claiming to be gods. These people would take on names that claim uh, deity for them. If you remember, uh, the Caesar, all the Caesars thought they were gods. They thought they were in place of God. They thought they were gods. So based on what the beast and the dragon are going to do, and from the way John describes them, it seems that they're intent on putting themselves in the place of God and in the place of Jesus. That's this beast's intention. And, and Satan has given him this authority and this power. These blasphemous names on the heads refer to claims that the beast is making to be a savior. In other words, I'm your savior, not Jesus. And there's different ways that can happen. He's not necessarily claiming, I'm Jesus, I I died and rose again. But we're going to see things that he, he uses to draw people to him, to pull them away from Jesus. Verse 2 there, it says, And the beast that I saw, again, figurative language, symbolic, representing something. The beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's. And, And to it, the beast, the dragon, gave his power and his throne and great authority. Again, before I go any further, the beast picture here is symbolic. It's representation of persecution. That's the way, one of the ways that Satan is coming after the church. He's persecuting the church. He's doing, he, he's coming after them in that way. And so the beast here is a, a symbolic representation of persecution. Persecution, I think, by governments hostile to Christians and to Jesus. 
There have been plenty of governments, plenty of political institutions that are hostile toward, the, toward Christ and His gospel. This is a key point to take from this text. And the reason why I think that's what's being symbolized here is because of, once again, it's because of what we see in the Old Testament. Verses 1 and 2 are clearly, clearly referencing Daniel chapter 7. Remember, we've talked about this almost every week. When we have this kind of language, we can go where, church? The Old Testament, and we can see the same language being used in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision, not of one, but of four beasts coming. Does anybody want to know? Does anybody remember where they come up from? Out of the sea. These beasts, which look like a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a ten-horned, boastful monster. They symbolize these four consecutive human kingdoms that would exercise power over God's people. Most commentators understand those four figurative beasts there to represent the kingdoms of Babylon, the Medo-Persia Empire, which would put down Babylon, and then the Greek Empire, which was ruled by who? Alexander the Great. He would put down the Medo-Persian Empire, and then finally would come what, church? the Roman Empire would put down Alexander the Great. However, when you look at chapter 13 of Revelation, we've got to pay close attention. There's something different about the beast here. He's a combination of all those beasts. Do you see that? He's a combination of all. He's not, he's not talking about, I saw this beast and this beast and this beast like Daniel, but he says there's a combination. This beast has all of that. He's, he's all together there. Combining all of them and... Revelation 13 is like summing up all of the beasts, the different nations in Daniel chapter 7. At one at the same time, he's like a leopard, a bear, a lion, and this ten-horned monster. In other words, the beast of Revelation 13 doesn't refer to one specific king or kingdom, but rather to all kingdoms that trouble God's people throughout the history of the church. He's ancient Rome, okay? He's communist China. He's North Korea. He is Islam. He's Adolf Hitler's Germany. He's any and every anti-Christian government that seeks to destroy God's people and the church. In other words, this beast is not necessarily a person. It's an institution. It's a political influence that's seeking to persecute God's people, his, his church. Look at the end of verse 2. It says, and to it, the beast, the the dragon did what? He gave his power and his throne and his great authority. Not just any authority, but great authority. Satan empowers these mighty uh, political, and again, I'm well aware that all political governments have a ruler. But Satan empowers these rulers, sets them up on their thrones, and gives them their authority to carry out evil against the church. So when you see governments and institutions who are persecuting Christians, this is what the beast is. This is who this beast is here. Satan is seeking. He's coming after the church. He couldn't kill Jesus, right? He did kill Jesus on the cross according to God's will. But Jesus rose from the dead and sent him back to heaven. And what did the devil do? Man, he got mad. And who's he after? Us. He's after us, and he's raging, he's furiously mad, and he has ways that he's going to come against us. And one of those is persecution, using 
different political influences and governments to persecute the people of God. Now let me ask you something, church. How many of you have ever heard or seen a political government persecuting Christians? It happens, right? I just named off a few of those. So that's who this beast is representing. And I can't help but run to the end there in verse 10. And the last thing it says is here is a call for the endurance of faith of the saints. You know what chapter 13 is telling us? These things are going to happen to you, church. You have no reason to be surprised when they happen. They're going to come. And here's a call for the church to endure. For the endurance and the faith of the saints. The point of application for us here is, uh, I think it's rather simple. And here's what it is. We have to be careful. We must be careful not to place hope, which would be a false hope. Let's not place hope in any type of human government. Now, let me stop right here. I'm a flag-waving American. I served in the military. I stand for this country. I fight for this country. And I know I'm 58 years old, but if they said you got to go again, I'd go. But we got to be careful and not place our hope in a human government. The kingdom of God is coming, and God's King Jesus is going to be our King. He will govern and He will rule in the new heavens and the new earth. And until He does, we are not to be fooled by cheap imitations. And listen, we're called sheep in the Bible for a reason, right? Because we're what? Dumb. Some days we're dumber than others. We could be in that movie, right? Dumb and Dumber. Y'all ever seen that? Yeah. In verses 3 and 4, we see how unbelievers respond to the beast. Uh, One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And notice this, the whole earth marveled as as they followed this beast. What you have here is a a, a satanically empowered uh, king, institution, setting himself up as a pretend savior. The healing of the apparent wound, this mortal wound is... uh, And believe me, when I read this this week, I was like, oh, man, here we go again. I'm going to have a headache this week. Never mind the rain is giving me a headache. I've got to do Revelation 13 this week, and my head's going to hurt even more. And and I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking this, and it all starts to come together. You have this satanically empowered king setting himself up as a pretend savior, The healing of this mortal wound. Listen, it's Satan's knockoff of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. He's pretending to be a savior. He imitates everything that Jesus does in some shape, form, or fashion. There there are several viewpoints concerning verse 2. But I I think when we we read verse 14, which we'll get to next week, we get the best view of what we see here in verse 13. Verse 14 says about a second beast, he was wounded by the sword and what? He yet lived. So this second beast will be uh, wounded but he with the sword, but he will yet live. And throughout the book of Revelation, again, 
We have to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. So when we see this beast here, the second one, he's wounded by the sword, we ought to go, what is the sword? And throughout the book of Revelation, the sword is used by Jesus. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, chapter 2, verse 12, chapter 2, verse 16, chapter 19, verse 15, and verse 21. With this view, the wound of the beast reflects the death blow to Satan by Jesus and his death and resurrection by establishing the church in the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, the persecuting world represents a revival of Satan's power in a way that would have impressed those who witnessed the apparent defeat. One commentator says, Satan's wound appeared to be fatal. And indeed, really was. Nevertheless, the devil's continued activity through his agent makes it appear to John as though he has overcome the mortal blow dealt him at Christ's death and resurrection. So you see what he's saying there? He was dealt a blow when Jesus died, but Jesus rose again. He was dealt a blow, but what is he doing? He's coming after the church now, and he's persecuting the church, and it looks like he's been what? Revived. He had a mortal wound. Jesus' death and resurrection was a mortal wound to Satan, but guess what? He's risen again. He he is coming after the church. Now, I'm going to tread lightly here. Maybe that's the correct view, or maybe it's not. But the important things for Christians is the need to understand that Satan and his beast will always seek to confuse the world by imitating to be a Savior in the place of Jesus. And you're going, no, I don't think so. Well, here's what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 24. He says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, the elect. The elect is talking about those who profess Christ as Lord and Savior. Let me read that again. Jesus said, False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, mortal wound, raised again, so as to lead us astray, if possible, even those who trust in Jesus. If possible, which means what? It's not possible. Verse 3, but something is possible. And the whole world marveled, and they did what? They followed the beast. Unbelievers worldwide here are amazed, and they do what? They follow this beast. And verse 4 says, and they worshipped the dragon. For he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against him? What you have here in verse 4 are those not protected by God's seal in chapter 7. Remember chapter 7? God protected his people, he put his seal on them. These are those who are not protected by that seal, those who are not part of God's True temple. Remember chapter 11? God measured out His people. He set them apart. He put His mark on them. These are not those people. They're not part of God's true temple. And they become convinced of the beast's authority. And what do they do? They worship Him. Mortally wounded, yet rose again to great power. Rather than worship God, what does the whole earth do here? They worship who? Satan. 
And it's been happening throughout the history of the world. It's happening today. And listen, it will continue to happen until Jesus comes back. Satan is after the church with a fury and a vengeance to persecute them in order to cause them to stumble and fall. But yet, they don't, right? God perseveres them. But those who are not protected by that seal, they will go after this beast. They will worship him. They will follow him. And notice in verse 4, they even sing, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? They mean, Who is like our mighty state or our mighty government or kingdom and who is able to wage war with it? Notice that verse 4 also says that they worship the dragon. They worship Satan in doing so. Now, if I'm perfectly honest, I don't think that most do this knowingly, realizing that that's what they're doing. A word of caution, don't go out tomorrow and tell your co-workers are lost that they're worshiping Satan, okay? That might not turn out good for you. But notice that they do it nonetheless. When, when you worship the beast of an a anti-Jesus, anti-Christian government or institution, you're really worshiping Satan who gave it its power. See, if you're worshiping anything other than Jesus as your Savior, as the one you find your security and your comfort in, you're worshiping Satan who gives that power to that. When you see the government... Let me stop again. Remember what I said earlier? I'm a flag-waving, proud American, okay? When you see the government as the remedy for our ills, and you see them as the remedy for our economic, our social, our medical, moral, and even spiritual ills, then the idolatry of that has taken the place that's been reserved for God. And we've got to be careful, Right? We see people doing that. Again, I show up, I vote, I think we should do that, I think we should support our president, pray for him, but listen, when I wake up every morning, you know where my first thought goes? Jesus. That is my hope. Not in what the government may do for me to cure all the ills and different things that's going wrong, and I'm grateful for how things are going in in different ways, I'm grateful for that, but I don't put my hope there. Rather than worship Jesus, these people here worship the beast, which is Satan's fake Jesus. That's his fake Savior. A false Christ, a fake Savior is anything other than Jesus. Whether this is an actual person or it's an anti-Christian government, who, who really knows for sure? But one thing's for sure, it's a fake Jesus. It's a fake Savior. The beast, this fake Christ, this... Fake Savior. He's a shyster. He he has a mortal wound and he comes back to life. Now does that sound similar to somebody else? It's the story of the true Savior, Jesus. The one who is really worthy of worship. Pay close attention to the language of their praise here. That's why I read Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 46 this morning. It's taken from a praise of God... In the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, where God is being praised for His deliverance of Israel at the Exodus. And here's what the words say in Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? See, they're giving the praise that God needs to be getting. They're giving it to this beast. Satan has no new ideas. 
He has no creations of His own. He has no uniqueness. All He can do is twist and pervert the things of God and draw people away. Here's here's what I want to ask you as a, a way of application. Are you worshiping Jesus as He really is? Or is there a possibility that you're worshiping what you think Jesus is? But it's really only a satanic imitation. Are you certain that your idea of who Jesus is matches who He is in the Bible? Because I can, can I tell you, that's the only Jesus there is. How do you know that Satan has not deceived you into following some imitation of Jesus? And I'll go on to say, can you tell the difference? And again, you know this as well as I do. You try to share the gospel with people, and one of the, one of the questions that we ask a lot of times is, what do you think it takes for people to get to heaven? And you've heard it, right? There's all kinds of strange things for how people get to heaven, Right? Can you tell the difference? The Bible is the only sure guide for telling the real Jesus from the counterfeits. Do you know your Bible well enough to be sure that you're worshiping Jesus and not some false Jesus? This fake Christ says, you don't look to Jesus, look to me. I'll be your provider, I'll be your comfort, I'll be your security. That's what this beast is saying. Which is what the Savior Jesus has promised us, right? And we're so blind, we're so sheep-like that we do what? We run to the beast. Look at verses uh, 5 through 8 here. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. We've outlined this, Satan goes to war. The beast was given, he was allowed... That's, that's, that's very important to notice that. This lets us know that God is sovereign even over this beast. He's given the ability to blaspheme and He was allowed to exercise authority. This reminds us that God is sovereign even over all this. Notice there it says the haughty and blasphemous words that the beast is allowed by God to speak. God allows him to do that. These are probably, again, claims that he's God. Worship me. The beast is probably making claims to what only God can rightfully claim. It may be the idea that says, Jesus is not, He must not, He can't be the only way. You ever heard that before? There's got to be other ways. We've progressed as a society. We're far beyond that old Bible stuff. You ever heard that? It says that biblical Christianity is restrictive and judgmental and it needs to change... You ever heard that? We need to change to accommodate what? Our world. Can I tell you something, church? Poor English. God ain't going to change. Christianity is restrictive. It's judgmental. It's got to change to accommodate the morals and values of our age. Or else it will be marginalized and excluded and oppressed. Verse 5 says, "...the beast was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months." Again, this number is the same as the 1,260 days and the phrase we see time, time, or time, half time, and times. 
It's all figurative language referring to the whole time between Jesus' first and second coming. God's letting Satan have his rule run during that time. And what it means here is that the beast's days of persecution are what, church? They're limited. They won't go on forever. God has given him a limited amount of time to act. And that time won't go on forever. Verse 6. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Nobody's off limits to Satan and his blasphemous words against God and His people. We know He's an enemy of God. He speaks blasphemous things against God. To claim privileges that belong to God alone is blaspheming God. It's attacking Him. And we also know He blasphemes throughout the church age against God. Notice what it says, God's dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. This is likely a reference to God's people. Maybe those who have died and gone on to heaven while we're still here. Satan even blasphemes. This, this will be, they will even blaspheme against those. And most likely it will be something like, do you really believe that when you die you will go to heaven and be with Jesus? Do you really believe that? Are you going to put your... Hopes and dreams in that. They blaspheme even that. Verse 7. He not only speaks evil against God's people, He also does evil to them physically. Also was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. This beast, and I've told you what I think it is, Whether that's right or wrong or not, but the beast, his priority is to do what? Acquire worship for Satan. And second, to physically persecute those who refuse to give worship. It says that the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. See, it should come as no surprise to us, church, that there will be persecution. God's people... And even here, if we read carefully, He'll persecute God's people and many will die for taking a faithful stand for Jesus. Church history tells us that throughout the world, Satan has provoked these uh, evil political institutions to kill God's people. Communist China, Russia. They've killed Christians. Um, how many of you ever seen or read the book, uh, The Insanity of God? You need to read that book and see how people are persecuted by political institutions and how they are put to death for their faith. Again, verse 7, By divine permission, He'll be given authority over the very people that Jesus came to redeem, every tribe and people, language and nation. He receives worship from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. Verse 8, All who dwell on the earth will worship it, the beast. The beast will establish his influence in every part of the world, gaining worldwide worship of all who are not protected by faith in Jesus. All who dwell on the earth will worship it, every one whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Verse 8 says, all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. But there's a second group here who are not the earth dwellers, who are not followers of the dragon and the beast. They follow a different leader. 
they declare loyalty to a different master. And unlike the earth dwellers, whose name it says was not written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, theirs has. This other group's name has been written in the, the book of life. The book of life here is a figurative language again, it's, it, it, but it's a book that belongs to Jesus. Here's the deal. Jesus is the official uh, record book holder. The, he's the official register which writes the names of those chosen for salvation before the foundation of the world. Those names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And those people don't worship the beast. God's elect don't worship the beast. Those whose names God recorded before time again, will not worship the beast. In other words, believers have been in the keeping power of God since before creation. And they will be there after the destruction of the earth and the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. In other words, there is the perseverance of the saints. If you've trusted in Christ, here's the one thing I know about God from His Word. God initiates, He sustains, and He completes everyone's salvation who trusts in Christ. No one falls away. And again, let, let me exhort you in this with a question. Do you wonder what it means to be a Christian? Are you deceived about what it means to be a Christian? To be a Christian means that you've, made, you've been made right with God through faith in the salvation that God accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus. There is no other way. To be a Christian is to believe that faith in Jesus is the only way to be made right with God. There are no other ways to be made right with God. If something else can make you right with God, then why did Jesus go to the cross and die? That is the one question I cannot get people to answer for me who think there are other ways. Why did Jesus come and die? What was the purpose? Christians, genuine Christians believe the death of Jesus was necessary to pay for sin. And genuine Christians believe that the only way to have the death of Jesus count for anyone is to believe in Jesus. Repenting of your sin and placing your faith in Jesus, that's what gets your name in the book of life. Verses 9 and 10. Here's the application. The call for the saints to persevere. Notice what he says. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? John goes back to the rule that he used in the seven letters to the churches. All Christians, all churches should be listening and heeding to what's being said here. It's coming. There will be persecution. The words of verse 9 are a simple call to pay attention and be spiritually discerning. There's no excuse for Christians to be ignorant. None. Chapter 13 says to the church, two words, be ready. Don't be surprised that the unbelieving world will give their adoration and worship to this beast. Don't be surprised, because that's what unbelievers do. The church is told to be ready. The beast is going to persecute the church. Verse 10, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, 
With a sword must he be slain. The first part of verse 10 is simply saying that for some Christians, captivity and martyrdom have been predestined by God for them and are therefore to be expected. So when a guy gets in a little boat with two other guys and they row him out to some island to go share the gospel with these uh, these, uh, antisocial people and he gets killed... God predestined that to happen. There's no avoiding what God has predestined to happen. If God has predestined you to be taken captive so that you will have the opportunity to show that God means more to you than freedom, then you will be taken captive. If God has predestined for you to be slain with the sword so that you'll have the opportunity to show that God means more to you than life, then you will be slain with the sword. If God has predestined you to be persecuted at work, at school, by others in the community for your Christian faith, so that you have an opportunity to show that God means more to you than comfort, then you will be persecuted. God's foreordained that. He's predestined that to happen. If God has predestined you to be be persecuted for your stand on the Word of God, you will be persecuted to show that God means more to you than comfort or security or having everyone like you. Now, that's not a good note to go home on, is it? Such things don't mean that God has abandoned you. The power of the beast, his persecution, does not mean that God's sovereign rule has been defeated. The beast only does what he's allowed to do by God. Enduring for the name of Jesus is God's will for some people. It may not be God's will for your life to suffer the way others do. And again, verse 10 is the application. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. You have all that going on and all of a sudden, right at the end, well, uh, by the way, church, this is a call for you to persevere. It's a call for you to endure in the faith. All this is going to happen. Be ready. But here's what you do. You You endure. God's Word is calling for believers to endure and keep believing when... Difficulty or persecution comes. This statement here is to keep you, Christian, from deciding you'll forsake Christ to avoid suffering. You ever been there? You ever been pushed to the point where persecution was so hard? You're, you, we've done this. Like when we're suffering anything in life, what is it we say a lot of times? This ain't worth it. This statement here is to persevere God's people in faithfulness through the suffering that Satan brings against them. The believer must remain faithful despite the persecution and difficulties that come his way. Again, let me ask the question. Do you know know Jesus today? Or is the Jesus you know the satanic fake Messiah? The real Jesus died on the cross to set free those who believe. He set them free from the consequences of their sin, those who believe. The real Jesus is going to come and He's going to bring destruction on all His enemies. The real Jesus demands exclusive loyalty and worship. Does He have yours? Does He have yours? Church, the message we are to proclaim is this. Salvation by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone.
Nothing else. Hostility toward Christianity is growing in our world. Right? It's growing. And it's only going to get worse. But we should not despair. Are you listening? Don't miss this. The early church did not grow because the government was behind them. Right? The Roman government was not behind them. They didn't grow because the government was behind them, but because they trusted the Holy Spirit and they proclaimed the gospel boldly. That's why they grew. They took the great commission that Jesus gave, they loved their neighbors, and they took the gospel to them, and they turned the world upside down. All the time that the Roman Empire was coming after them with a fury. Who was coming after them? The beast was coming after them. You know, it's one thing to say that we believe the gospel. To say we believe Jesus to be the Savior. To say we're gospel-centered people, Jesus-centered people. It's one thing to say that, but the proof is in whether or not there's a gospel culture within the church. We can say it all day long, but the proof is in the pudding, right? Is there a gospel culture within the church? Jesus Himself said again, Faith Christ and false prophets will arise, perform signs and wonders to lead astray if possible the elect. We need to be equipped to heed what Jesus said in Mark chapter 13, verse 23. Be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. What is Jesus saying? What you're reading in Revelation chapter 13, I'm telling you beforehand, that's what's going to happen. Satan is a powerful deceiver and we, we need to be able to tell the difference between the real Jesus and the fake Jesus that Satan uses to deceive the world. And one last question. Are you certain that your idea of who Jesus is matches who He is in the Bible? How do you know that Satan has not deceived you into following some imitation of Jesus? Let's pray.